to Between Innings with Dan Kolko. It's been a while. We are here in Philadelphia, not at Chatter, in our hotel room, and figured we hadn't done a podcast episode in a while. Dan Kolko and John Harvey back with you. Between Innings has returned. Hello, John. Hey, Dan. First of all, it's not our hotel room. It's my hotel room. We, we do not share hotel rooms. You have your own. but we're Our in- hotel. Did I say our hotel yes. room? Yeah, that, <laughs> yeah that does sound a little... True. It's not, not accurate. Sure. Yeah, we, we do have our own rooms. It's been a long time since we had a podcast episode. Apologies for that. There's uh, been some scheduling stuff. Uh, things have been a little, I don't know, busy on our end, I guess you could say. But we, uh, we wanted to get back into it. And a lot has happened with this Nationals Ball Club Really over the course of the entire 2018 season, but over the last couple months as well. Um, Lots to discuss from the team. Some past trades, some potential for future trades over the next couple days, perhaps. Um, So we'll discuss all that. We'll get into some fan questions as well and have some fun uh, with our old uh, buddy Frank and a funny story uh, with Frank the Ice Cream Man. And then uh, we'll talk about the final five weeks and what we're looking for uh, from this Nationals Club as we get towards September. Um, John, everything going well? We haven't, uh, we haven't had one of these in a while. Everything good? Yeah, everything's good. Um, we're winding down the month of hate, only a couple more days, so yeah. that's only a plus, always a plus. Uh, but, yeah, everything's good. You know, just the grind. You know, it's that part of the season where you want to be done, but you also are excited for the potential of maybe a stretch run or something. But, yeah, everything's good. What about you, man? Things are good. Um, I always tell people all the time that the baseball season is, like, it, it – is tough to wrap your mind around in terms of the time of it. It starts, and we've discussed this on the podcast before, it feels so daunting, such a long season. You just kind of put your head down, and then you're at the All-Star break, and then September's here, and you're like, wait, where'd the season go? There's so many games, and yet at various points it feels like it kind of flies, and you look back and you're like, wow, it's almost over now. It's weird. Yeah, on the day-to-day level, it kind of crawls, it seems, but then when you look back at big picture, it really does – go by fast probably because we're doing nothing but working and don't have time to really take anything else in that's for sure all right um let's get right into it john leading off not bad for a you know lengthy time off um john let's each pick to to start off our leading off segment let's each pick what we think might be the biggest uh cause or or reason for where the Nationals are at this point in the season, third place in the division, still looking up at the Phillies and at the Braves, and certainly not at the the spot that they envisioned being as September approached. Now, I know there's a lot of fan frustration. I know fans might want to single out one particular person. Uh, The manager is always an easy target when a team isn't playing as well as it's expected to, so there have been people certainly that have – you know, pointed fingers at Davey. Um, there, in my mind, there are multitude of reasons for why the Nationals are where they are. So let's each pick one, and we can dive into that from, from various angles. I'll, I guess I'll go ahead and start and just say that there have been periods of the season where – players have not performed to their career norms or expectations. And when that happens, you often need to rely on depth. And the depth, for whatever reason, because of injuries, because of um, organizational lack of depth, just hasn't really been there this year. It hasn't really come together. And and I'll kind of 
tie up that long-winded point um, by by just you know saying a couple names here. You know, Gio Gonzalez hasn't been the Gio Gonzalez that we've been used to seeing for long stretches. Tanner Roark wasn't the guy that we're used to seeing through the first half of the season. He's he's since pieced it together and is having a really nice second half. But when you have two fifths of your rotation that isn't performing to its normal level, you need to rely upon minor leaguers. You need to rely upon other guys in your rotation to, to pick up the slack. Max Scherzer has certainly been great, but Steven Strasburg has been hurt throughout much of the season. Jeremy Hellickson has had a couple stints on the disabled list now. So, and it's not just the starting pitching. There, there have been other uh, guys as well position player-wise, that just haven't performed to the level that, that they are used to. And when that happens, you have to rely upon other people. You have to rely upon depth. And it just hasn't really – the pieces haven't fit together in that realm this season. And I think that's a big part of the reason why the Nationals are where they are. Yeah, I mean, when you look individually, you can certainly point to a lot of different guys and say, like, okay, for three months he didn't hit. But now he's on fire, you know. So yeah, it, there was a lot of like all or nothing mentality individually and as a team uh, this year. And it's easy to say the injuries, you know, it is. And if you look at the days games missed by players that are on the DL, like the Nats are up at the top, and that's just how the chips fell this year. You know, the whole Murphy thing with him missing first two se- months seemingly, the seemingly yeah. the whole season. You know, it just seemed like okay, he's not here, he's not here, he's not. You know, so. That I mean, that's huge. I mean, and then he ends up getting traded, which we'll talk about a little bit later. The bullpen, I mean, gracious, that's been a revolving door of player. We haven't had the same bullpen for more than a week, it seems, because every other day it seems someone's getting hurt, someone's getting sent down, someone's back. Like, So there's just been no continuity this year, and, and I think that goes a long way in the reason why they're only one game over five hundred. Yes, I agree. Um, every team has injuries. For sure, the Nationals have had a lot of injuries to a lot of key players. Um, but it, when you're talking about uh, groupings of the roster, position player, you know, offense, starting pitching, bullpen, those areas have not clicked together at any point this season. When the starting rotation was going great in, in May, the offense was struggling to put runs together at a consistent level. Uh, game-to-game level, really throughout the entire month and into June, that's when Daniel Murphy wasn't around. That's when Adam Eaton was rounding into form. Um, Ryan Zimmerman was struggling to begin the season, and then he landed on the disabled list. So when the rotation was great, the offense wasn't there. When the offense came together later in the season, once Murphy was healthy and started clicking, once Eaton was back, the starting pitching had all the injuries. The bullpen had that stretch where uh, they were healthy. Sean Doodle was locking things down. They had Brandon Kinsler. They had Ryan Madsen healthy. And things were looking good in the pen. And then, uh, again, once the offense came around, the bullpen kind of fell apart to some extent. So it just seems like things haven't synced up. Just kind of one of those weird years. There are some years where everything comes together. And it just seems like things are rolling and it could be a magical type of season. And for whatever reason this year, uh, bad luck, injuries, whatever it may be, that just hasn't happened this year. Yeah, what you just hit on was kind of going to be my big reason. And basically when they pitched, they didn't hit. And when they hit, they didn't pitch. You know, And no one 
exemplifies that better than Max Scherzer's season. I mean, Max, this is his best season as a national statistically by a lot. And that's comparing it to back-to-back Cy Young Awards. So, I mean, when you look at Max's snapshot of the season, he has 28 starts this year. You know how many times he allowed two runs or less? Tell me, John. 23. 23 of 28. They're 15 and 8 in those 23 starts. 15 and 8. So, so they you win five of those eight. Right. You're 10 more games over 500. All of a sudden, the Nats are 11 games over 500 and two games out of the division. And then this is a whole different feeling. And that's just one pitcher throughout the, the season. You know, so it, and that's just a snapshot. And I, I get it's easy to say, like, well, they should have won that, but they probably won some when some other pitcher let up eight earned runs. And I, and I get that. But I just think Max's season is a perfect microcosm of the national season in that he when he was on, a lot of times the team wasn't. And, I mean, he got zero or one run of support 10 times out of 28. 10 out of 28, you know. So it's just it's just one of those things. That you can't really put a finger on it. And, yeah, people blame the injuries. People blame Davey. There's a lot of easy outs as far as where to point the blame. I just think it wasn't their year. And it's simple as that. And that's not really a reason, but it is in baseball. Because you always hear people say, that's baseball. Well, this season has been baseball for the Nets. And that's not to say that something special couldn't happen over the final month of the season. You know, I think everyone who has watched this team over the last three weeks or so has felt that they've played better baseball than they had for much of the season. Now, have have the results been there? Has it turned into a prolonged winning streak? No. And that is going to need to happen if this team is going to have any real chance of making a run over the final week or two of the season. Um, it still could because they have been playing better baseball and they are healthier now uh, than they have been at any point in the season. But you're right. It, it just has not come together. It hasn't seemed like one of those magical seasons where the pieces are falling into place and, and you're clicking. And uh, this is this is the situation that you find yourselves in. They, they have not been um, seemingly more than three games over 500 in forever. I know there, there was a period very briefly in early August where I think they were four games over, but it just seems, John, like this team has hovered around 500 for the last three months. They're, they're two games over, then they lose three in a row, then they win two in a row, then they drop one, then they win three in a row. They can't get on a sustained winning streak where they win eight in a row, where they win 13 of 15 to get you into contention. Yeah, because winning eight in a row is tough, but the 13 of 15 point, like, you know, win four, lose a game, win three, lose a game, win five, you know, so yeah, but you're right, they haven't done it. They were four games over 500 on August 7th, you know, and then, but that's it, and that's four games. You know, they're one game over right now, but prior to uh, Thursday's action, right. or Wednesday's action. Right, sorry. and and yeah, like you said, it's not impossible for them to make this unbelievable run. I mean, it really isn't. They still have 29 games left. The schedule's not favorable. I mean, when they get home, they have a 10-game home stand against the NL Central top three teams that are all very good, and the Brewers, the Cubs, and the Cardinals. That's coming off three against the Phillies, who are very Good standing wise, they're not standing wise. They have played some atrocious baseball in this series and have not looked like anything resembling a playoff team, in my perspective. Totally agree. I don't. Even, we're going to talk trades in a minute, but I don't even know what they're doing with the trades they're making. But anyway, I just it, so. But that that's a 19 game stretch because then they go from there to Atlanta. So there's 19 games in a row where you're playing teams that are above 500, and it's not. They're not just above 500. Most of them are 10 or 15 games above 500. So if the Nats do something special. It would truly be remarkable to see, and it would be one of the greatest runs in baseball recent history. So 
who knows? Fingers crossed. And I know the fans want to hear that there's a chance, and there certainly is. But you know, don't bet on it. You would you would have to play a prolonged positive uh, streak or, or you know winning streak that you haven't had really all season long. Um, it, and it would need to happen now, as you said, against some really quality competition. If they if they get into the mix uh, legitimately or if they win this division or, or earn a playoff spot, it will be earned because they will have to earn it. Against the teams that are ahead of them. Yep. And, I mean, when they get home, they'll have 28 games left. I would think if they legitimately want to get back in it, they'd have to win 22 or 23 of them. You know, and that's not impossible, but improbable. Unlikely. All right, let's pivot now and talk about a couple of trades that the Nationals have already made, and then we can wrap up this leading-off segment discussing the possibility of another trade or two in the coming, what, 48 hours before the waiver deadline period uh, passes. So the non-waiver trade deadline came and went, and the Nationals opted, with the exception of trading Brandon Kinsler to the Cubs, and a day later sending uh, Sean Kelly packing, designated for assignment, and then traded to the Athletics, um, they stood pat. And Mike Rizzo and Mark Lerner said that they had faith in this team and they didn't feel like they wanted to throw in the towel. They wanted to give this team another chance to, to make a run at this thing and put it all together. So they did not trade Bryce Harper. They did not trade Daniel Murphy and others prior to the nine-waiver deadline. Then, what is it now? A, a little over a week ago, um, we find out that as always happens in August – the Nationals put players on revocable trade waivers just to gauge interest, see who might get through uh, the waiver wire. And then they decided after Daniel Murphy had been claimed by the Cubs and after Matt Adams had been claimed by the Cardinals to trade both of those players to those respective teams. Let's first of all, John, talk about these moves from a 2018 Nationals perspective and what they mean and, and spin it forward. And then I want to talk about those two players and what they brought to this organization in their times, the respective times here. So what this does for the Nationals this season is it saves them about, I want to say, $4.5 million. Murph was owed uh, about $4 million. Matt Adams, about a million remaining. This money, Mike Rizzo said, will be allocated towards next season. So they could use this money to bolster their club for next year. Uh, a lot of roster speculation, the way that the Nationals could go with, with uh, certain positions and roster moves. We have plenty of time to discuss that once we get closer to the offseason and into the offseason. But that allows them more money to do that. It also gets them closer to getting under the luxury tax limit. Mike Rizzo saying that that's a complicated process and the Nats might not even know until maybe the end of the season where exactly financially they will stand on that. But what this did at a time when the Nationals still could have made a run and they still can is it took away their most consistent and productive hitter, which is what Daniel Murphy had become, and it took away their biggest bench threat in Matt Adams, who had a huge season and sent them to other contending teams in the National League. Some fans were surprised. Some fans were disappointed. Some players in the clubhouse were surprised and disappointed. But Mike Rizzo and uh, Mark Lerner saying that they felt that they gave this team a chance to put it together. It didn't happen in the two weeks after the non-waiver deadline passed, and so Daniel Murphy and Matt Adams were traded away. Yeah, it was, it was kind of a surprising 
move in the timing that it happened because it happened the day that the Nats were starting the three-game series at home against the Phillies, and that was seemingly the last chance for the Nats to really say, like, hey, we're back in this, let's sweep the Phillies. And then, But they trade two of their big left-handed bats that morning, which I guess the timing confused me a little bit, but I don't – I understand the deals. Matt Adams was slumping big time. He's 0 for his last 27 today, which – it's not good. But he carried the team offensively yeah. in early earlier in the year. And Zim's back. So it's a crowded first base spot right now for the Nats. So I get it. You know, get what you can get for him and, and move on. I mean, I hate to see him go because he was great. He was great for the team in the clubhouse and on the field. The Murph one, I guess, was a little more surprising. But that had the more beneficial financial tag to it. Like you said, saving about $4 million. I was, I guess, the most surprising thing to me in the whole thing was that Murphy went to an NL club, and I get the waiver process; like he has to pass through all the NL teams before he gets to the AL. But I don't see there's any chance that he's going to re-sign next year with the Cubs because he's getting to a point in his career and his knees that he can't play in the field. So he is like a perfect candidate to be a DH, so or a first baseman potentially. Potentially, yeah, a little less mobile position over there than you're a little exposed at second base. But yeah, it was just it was just kind of odd, and I, and I think the fans saw it as a a white flag, but for me, on the field, I don't think the team is drastically better or worse without either of them. I, I know Murphy's hitting 300, and he, and his bat is a loss, but you're getting Wilmer Defoe in the lineup, and I'm not saying Wilmer is a Daniel Murphy, but he allows you to do more things on offense because he's fast and he has speed, and he's leaps and bounds better in the field. So, And then Matt Adams, at this point in the season, losing him on the field is not that big of a deal. It's not a you know a huge blow. A crushing blow. Ryan Zimmerman's back and productive. He wasn't going to play much anyway. Right. So I don't I didn't see it as a white flag. I saw it as like a, okay, this is how the timing worked out and we need to make these deals, but we're still going to give it our best shot and try to make a run at it. So it, it was odd for sure and not something you see every year um, when a supposed a team that's supposed to contend trades away some big bats that time of year. I think one thing that that maybe led to some of those weird feelings among uh, you know fans or people in the national baseball uh, realm was that the Nationals have always kind of been either all in or not. And this this was a an afternoon that provided a couple trades that left them kind of in some middle ground where they're looking towards next season and uh, clearing up some financial space while also saying, you know, Mike Rizzo said, I, I'm not giving up on this team. I, I think we can still make a run at this thing. We'll see what happens. So you're kind of in, in some ways caught in the middle there, but I think the deal does make sense from a couple different perspectives. Why not wait until later in August to trade Daniel Murphy? Well, there's the factor there that the longer that you have him on your roster, the longer you have to pay him. And if you're doing this to clear up financial room to either improve your roster next year or to get under the luxury tax, then you want to trade them when you're ready to trade them for the sheer point that you're, you're saving more money. So, yes, could the Nationals have used Daniel Murphy? Of course, I'm with you. I don't think they're a significantly worse team without him. Um, I think there are some players in that clubhouse who were frustrated by the move uh, because they still felt like they could make a run at it, but you also can't in my mind, blame ownership or Mike Rizzo for saying this is a team that we've seen now for four and a half months. They're a game under 500 or whatever they were at the time, 
and this, you know, if they turn it around, great, but we've got to do what we've got to do. Yeah, I think ownership in the front office, it seemed that the end of the NL Central road trip when the team was in Chicago and oh, yeah. St. Louis, the way that ended kind of was the nail in the coffin as far as their minds go. And then the Miami loss, where you go out and you lose to the worst team in your division by, what was it, a 20-1 to 1 score? Yeah, it was... 20 it, to nothing, I it was It was bad. It, it was not a good look, and... And you can't blame ownership for doing what they did. I know it's frustrating as a fan base because you want, you still have hope that they're going to make a run, and that hope can still be there. But it's also a business, and you hear that said a lot, but it is. And this team in the front office and in ownership has proven the last eight years that they're really good at running this business. So you got to kind of trust them. Let's spin this now and talk about Daniel Murphy and what he did with the Nationals in his two-and-a-half-plus seasons here. These are remarkable numbers offensively and the way that Murph turned his career around I I know it was discussed a lot after that postseason run with the Mets in 2015 I know that first year you know he got a lot of questions after signing with the Nationals about how he you know launch angle and all that stuff and, and became a power hitter these numbers are miraculous in his time with the Nationals he hit 329 he had a 930 OPS on base plus slugging with a 380 on base and a 550 slugging percentage. In two and a half years, he hit 54 homers while missing most of this season and not really having his power stroke. 99 doubles. Um, the consistency that this guy provided from an offensive perspective, the way that he grinded out at bats, gave you a pro at bat every time he stepped into that batter's box. Um, fouled off pitches, worked tough pitchers. Uh, could handle velocity, could handle sharp off-speed stuff. It didn't matter what pitchers threw at him in terms of repertoire. Murph was never outmatched. Um, and it was a lot of fun watching that guy hit, man. You could talk about all the other elements that you want, the, the defense, which I think was better than what we thought it might be the first two years that he was here. Um, but Daniel Murphy is a pro hitter, and his bat is certainly going to be missed in this club, you know, down the stretch and, and going forward. Yeah, he he certainly – it was only two and a half years, but he certainly was a really good Nat, and he should be remembered that way. He led the league in doubles both years in 16 and 17. He finished second in the MVP voting. Yep. In uh, – what was that? 16. 16 behind Chris Bryant. And it wasn't very close in the voting, but it probably should have been. I mean, his stats that year were insane. Yeah. And then the next year, he finished top 20 in the MVP, which is not amazing, but it means you had a good season. Two all-stars, two silver sluggers. Like, he was awesome. And he was the best hitter in baseball for two years. Yeah. Especially, the at least the National League. And you could always count on him uh, for a big hit. You know, clutch clutch performer, as we saw again in that 2015 um, uh, postseason run for the Mets. And he made a comment at his uh, departing press conference where he said the Nationals took a chance on me in free agency. They were the only offer that I had. And so he said it was incredibly bittersweet to be traded. Um, he, he liked his time in D.C. Matt Adams, you know, we, we talked about him a little bit ago, but I'll just put a bow on this by saying that, you know, a lot of people questioned the decision to not re-sign Adam Lind and to sign Matt Adams instead. And all Matt Adams did this year, even with that slump, John, that you mentioned down, you know, the stretch in his Nationals tenure the last couple of weeks, hit 257, an OPS of 842, and 18 home runs, and was playing every day, hit lefties better than he had at any point in his career previously, uh, filled in for Zim admirably on a daily basis, a fantastic guy. I really enjoyed getting to know him and, and having him around the clubhouse. Uh, 
you, you take a look at him and he's this big hulking presence with tattoos and, um, you know, kind of has an intimidating look about him. He is, he's such a gentle giant, man. Really nice guy. We're going to miss having him around. And uh, he was a good nat as well. Yeah, clutch too. 320 with runners in scoring position this year. So he had some big early hits for this, uh, this team. And it was, it was cool to see him come in in a tough spot filling in for Adam Lynn that everyone wanted to resign. And I mean, he did more than answer that call. He sure did. All right. Let's take a quick break here on Between Innings. When we come back, we're going to take some fan questions and have a little fun talking about our old buddy Frank, the ice cream guy at Citizens Bank Ballpark. Fans of the Between Innings podcast know Frank well. More coming at you. This is Between Innings with Dan Polko. All right, John, we're always looking for local businesses to support the Between Innings podcast and... We are so happy to have Peters and Associates on board with us this year. They specialize in providing tax preparation, tax planning, and accounting services for individuals and small businesses. Aaron and his wife, Megan, run Peters and Associates, big Nationals fans. So Nationals, go ahead and support a fellow Nats business. Um, Visit them at www.peterscpa.info. Go to their Facebook page at facebook.com slash peterscpa, that's P-E-T-E-R-S-C-P-A. For everyone looking to get their taxes in order and any accounting services that you might need, Aaron and Megan have you covered, peterscpa.info. All right, welcome back to Between Innings. Uh, John, let's take some fan questions. This is something that we haven't done in a little while. And I think, you know, I wanted to, wanted to hear from the fans about this. Uh, we got some responses on Twitter. And uh, let's go through some of these. Let's start with one that tees up uh, a question about our old buddy Frank. And this is one. Let me try and find the actual tweet here. I forget who it was that asked it. We'll just go ahead and say the person was wondering about the ice cream selections, and about our buddy Frank, who we have chronicled in the past. Frank's the man. Um, you did a little Insta story of him the other day, and, I mean, he is as nice as he looks, and he's a better ice cream scooper than he is a nice guy. Yeah. And that's saying something. Yeah, but the selection's great. They always have, like, eight different scooped ice creams. This is, We're not talking soft serve. It's very common on the road for the media dining room to have soft-serve ice cream. National Spark has it. Most have it. Philly does not have soft-serve ice cream. They have Frank scooping ice cream, and it is leaps and bounds better than any other ice cream selection in baseball. And I would say I consider myself an ice cream connoisseur. Aficionado. An aficionado. I like a good scream. Yes. I, the quality of Turkey Hill ice cream is also good. Yes. It's not, this is not some low-budget, you know, rinky-dink little ice cream they're throwing at us. It's, not it's the solid ones, stuff. Yeah, it's not the ones you get in, like, the gallon, clear, plastic bucket at right. the grocery store. This is top-notch stuff. And Frank was so excited. This is, you know, I, I as you mentioned, put this on the Instagram story. I walk in for the first day of this, the series, and Frank, he remembers my name every time. And I know there are members of the crew as well that you guys aren't up in the press box like I am as frequently. He knows your guys' names as well. Um, and he, Dan, how you doing, buddy? He's so nice and kind, and he was so excited to show me the ice cream selections that day. It rotates on a daily basis, and he was calling that day's selection 
the, the lineup he said was so good that it reminded him of the 27 Yankees. That's, that's how <laughs> geeked up Frank was for that day's picks. And uh, he, was, he was ready for us when we came. And he will not let you escape with, with fewer than one or two scoops. No chance. Yeah, our producer, Chip, had he came back to the table the other day with one scoop. And I, I don't know what happened. I, yeah. I don't know. Maybe Frank was doing something else in the back, and he had another scooper. There, but was a, there must have been a distraction, and Chip just escaped. Yeah, I don't know how you get away with less than three scoops. Because you tell him the best flavor is bar none, Graham Slam. And you tell him, hey, Frank, can I get some Grand Slam? He's like, well, yeah, but what else do you want? I'm like, no, just a scoop of Grand Slam. Well, then you come out with like four scoops of Grand Slam. You have no control. Yeah, he just keeps going. It's like a machine, but it's the best machine ever. Do you want to tell the Chuck story? Yeah, so Chuck's our director. Chuck uh, Whitlock, everyone. Great, great, great director. Yeah, we have a great crew, and we have fun on the road, and that's why we can tell this story. So Frank has a whole stack of cups up there, but he has two different sizes. I never even noticed he had two different sizes. I didn't either until until... Until we're all sitting at the dinner table the other day, and Chuck comes back with his ice cream, and it's in a, this little cup. Yeah. And we're like, Chuck, why'd you get a little cup? And he didn't know. He didn't even realize it was a little cup, and then we all had our big cups of ice cream, and he kind of got offended. He did. And you want to know why he got offended? Because when our producer Chip and I went up to get our ice cream, I said, Frank, what's the deal with the small cups? And he said, oh, no, there's two sizes. I give everyone that I like the big cup. And those that I don't like as much, I give them the little cup. And so we come back with huge smiles on our faces. And Chuck, I guess, found out the hard way that Frank is not uh, not a big fan of his. Well, I, I think that might be an overstatement. But Frank and Chuck, uh, they settle their differences or whatever <laughs> their beef yeah. was. Yeah. And Chuck did get a big cup the next day. So Chuck's in the circle now with Frank. But it was a tenuous, like, yeah. 15 to 20 minutes when Chuck had the small cup and everyone had big cups. But... Thankfully, Chuck has joined us with the big cups now. Yeah, thank goodness. You're you're welcomed back into the Frank circle of trust, I guess, Chuck. And John, speaking of Frank, I I feel very fortunate. I was able to sit down with Frank for a couple minutes, uh, final day in Philadelphia, and have a, a brief little conversation. This, to me, this is most meaningful interview I've ever done in my. Uh, you know, sports media career. It's got to be up there with your, you know, Jason Worth memorable walk-offs, you know, that kind of thing. So, I mean, I, I, it, I'm glad you got to do it. I hope you don't – it doesn't make your head a little too big. But, I mean, it's certainly one to hang your hat on. Frank's a legend, let's be honest. Right. If <laughs> I'll have him sign, like, a picture for me, you know, dedicated, <laughs> put it on my wall at home. Um, all right, so here it is, folks. You wanted it. Here's Frank the Ice Cream Scooper with me at Citizens Bank Park. So, Frank, do you approach everything in life with the passion that you do giving people ice cream here in the Citizens Bank Park press box, or is this every a day. special thing for you? No, every day I do. I just look at the world as a glass being half full, period. There's no such thing as a half-empty glass. Or a half-empty cup of ice cream or when someone's cream. in front of you. No, you guys come in, and what I try to do, nationalists come in, the Dodgers come in, whatever. I've been here 18 years doing this. After 40 years retired from the bank, what I tried to do, and I write it down, I mean, I know what you guys like. Mm. You like Grand Slam, you like cookies and cream. It's the same thing with any other club coming here. So, like today, I just ordered 14 more with the Cubs coming in. <laughs> oh, it's, it's what you should do because, I mean, this is your home away from home when we try to please you. That's very sweet. Um, it's like ice cream. It, it, exactly. And it's not me. Believe me, it's Turkey Hill. They do a heck of a job. 
How did you come into this role uh, working in the, the media dining room here and specifically 20, doling out the ice cream? It's funny how you, you say that. Uh, 20 years ago, again, I retired. 40 years with a bank. Came to a Phillies game. It was my boy. And I noticed the people that were working here, they had different color shirts, mainly like blue, yellow, and red. Called one of them over. What's the blue shirts for? So that's security. What are the red shirts? That was host and hostess. And the other color, whatever it was, it was the, the ground crew. So the guy says to me, very simply, you know, do you want an application? You know, I was like 57. I mean, I started my bank at 17. So I said, sure. So I filled it out September of 98. They called me here uh, January of uh, 99. So my first two years here at the Phil's, I was a host. And uh, they called me up here to need a little help at one day, and that was 18 years ago. And I've been doing the same thing here. Wow. 76 years old, my wife says, you know, like, when are you gonna quit? Maybe when they carry me out. I just love, I, I love meeting the people. As I say, for 40 years working at a bank, I was a salesman at a very big territory. So I was just riding around all day and from Maine to Florida and uh, meeting people. And I just enjoy talking to people. And we love coming here and seeing you. You've always got a smile well, on your is. face. It's, and... it's no, not Danny, I mean, Charlie, uh, Dave, and you know, you guys are great. It's like when the Mets come in, like them or dislike them, it's my job to please them. Keith is crazy. I mean, I know what they <laughs> like, and you know, it's, it's the way it is. And uh, all the weekends we got here at home anyway, Schmitty, which I have, uh, you know, really grown to love to me. Really, he's a good guy. He brings his wife once in a while, good family man. And that's what I look at, but mainly uh, to please you guys, no matter what team comes in. Okay, so most important question and final question for you. Give me your top three ice cream picks that you guys offer. Okay, Grand Slam. Number That's number one? That's number one with the fans in which they work here, the employees as well as the press and the camera guys and so forth. Grand Slam. Mm -hmm. Second, I would say it's probably be my rookie of the year, I call it. Last year was Double Dunker. It was very good. And again, it's not me. It's Turkey Hill Ice Cream. Mm -hmm. Third, it's a uh, numerous amount. I mean, vanilla bean because the little crystals in there. Mm -hmm. uh, mint is good. And uh, I mean, sherbet too. I mean, it's they say. But one two punch I have to give you is Grand Slam and, uh, and Double Dunker. All right, well, I'm going to try Double Dunker for the first time tonight. I'm excited. Please do. <laughs> Double Dunkers, again, the chocolate ice cream, little pieces of chocolate cake, little slices of almond with a tint of uh, coffee. I love it. That's I love good. it. Okay. Frank, always great to see you, buddy. My pleasure. And behave yourself. Um, all right, John, let's move on. Uh, do you want to tee up these uh, these other fan questions? How do you want to do this? Yeah, sure. I got them. Um, now, I don't know if these are names or Twitter handles, but I think that might be a conglomerate. But anyway, uh, John Casper chimes in and says, now that we've seen Soto for 80 games, what type of numbers are projected for 2019? What does he need to do, if anything, to improve at the plate? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, you talked to Kevin Long, uh, the Nationals hitting coach, about Juan Soto, and he says that his approach is pretty close to perfect. I don't know if you can ask for a whole lot more offensively than what Juan Soto has shown this season. Over the last week or two, there have been a few more strikeouts. The on-base percentage and batting average have dipped a tiny bit, but he's still got an on-base percentage of over 400. His numbers with two strikes are ridiculous. His numbers against left-handed pitching are ridiculous for a left-handed hitter. Um, he does everything well. He's shown that he can hit for power. He can hit for average. He doesn't let the 
um, the moment or the situation, it being a clutch spot, get to him and affect the quality of his at-bat or him chasing outside the zone. I think if you, if you get what you've gotten from Juan Soto this year over the course of a full 162, you would sign up for that in a frickin' heartbeat. Yeah, I, I mean, he has his stats have gone down each month, and I think that's to be expected. He's never played anywhere even close to the amount of games that he's played this year. So I think the things he can quote-unquote improve on, one, just physical fitness. Like, I mean, just keep staying in shape so you're good for a whole season. I think he needs – he's better hitting fastballs than he has breaking balls. Mm-hmm. And I think as the league is adjusted, he's getting a lot more breaking balls lately, and therefore he's he's taking called strike threes, which – this is so nitpicky because he's so good at walking, but maybe maybe be more aggressive. And then I'm I'm not telling him to be more aggressive. I'm just saying like John, if you're gonna John. pick something to improve on, you know, if you're more aggressive, then he doesn't strike out as much, but he doesn't walk as much. So who knows? The kid's a stud, and if you want to project 2019 numbers, I mean, in my mind, you're talking a 30 home run, 100 RBI, 100 run, 300 average guy. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about MVP caliber player with 100 walks in there as well. Um, yeah, I, I think you could very easily project him as a 25 to 30 home run guy who can drive in runs, who can get on pace at a very high clip. He brings everything to the table. And from a sheer lineup construction standpoint, he could be a perfect number two hitter. He could be a really strong number three hitter. So Davey will have some options next year with how he wants to structure things. Does he want to go Adam Eaton and Juan Soto, two lefties at the top of his order? Does he maybe go Anthony Rendon in the two hole? You know, a, a lot of time to discuss all that, but Juan Soto's offensive skill set is, I mean, we've talked about it all year. It's remarkable. All right, next up from Andrew Ryan. Uh, do the Nats keep Geo this offseason? So we never got to this in our, in our trade conversation. I'm glad that we included this in our, uh, our fan questions. Um, so there still are two days left um, in August and thus in the waiver deadline window when the Nationals can trade players Uh, as they did Daniel Murphy and Matt Adams, either who clear waivers and no team has claimed them or are claimed by a specific team, they have to work out a deal with that specific team. Um, Gio Gonzalez, uh, it's been reported, cleared waivers. So the Nationals could, in theory, deal him to any team. Uh, Ryan Madsen, I believe, has cleared waivers, according to reports. He could be dealt to any team. Mark Reynolds uh, was claimed by the Braves. It was reported, and the Nationals pulled him back. They did not make a trade with the Braves. So Mark Reynolds now cannot go anywhere. He will be a National for the rest of the season. Um, The question here was specifically about Gio Gonzalez. He's worth, I believe, or uh, has, uh, I believe, about $2 million left on his contract for the rest of the season. Um, Certainly hasn't had the type of year that he would want were the last couple months that he would want. But his final outing coming into Wednesday's game against the Phillies was really strong. Had another gem up in City Field like he typically always does. If there is a team out there that needs a left-handed starting pitcher, the Oakland A's perhaps, Gio's former team, who have had some injuries in their rotation, and they came calling to Mike Rizzo and said, you know, hey, Riz, we, we need a starter. I wonder if Gio Gonzalez could be dealt. The Nationals have Joe Ross coming back from Tommy John surgery. They have Eric Fetty coming back from his DL stint. Jeremy Hellickson is getting healthier. Tommy Malone is around as well. Could they maybe get rid of a little bit more payroll, try and get under the luxury tax, allocate those financial resources towards next year? It's certainly a possibility. I would not rule that out before the end of August. 
Yeah, the A's are an intriguing option just because, like you said, they had Brett Anderson and Sean Manea go in the DL, both left-handed starters right. in the in a two-day span. And the Nats and the A's have a little bit of history with trades, you know, so that could— Yeah, only about 8 million deals over the right. last five years. So that totally could happen. Um, but, but, yeah, it should be interesting because the Nats have shown they're not afraid to make moves right now in dealing Murphy and Adams and Kinsler and Kelly. So we'll see. I mean, the question was, do we think he's going to be here next year? Oh, was that the question? That was the question. But so we're saying he might not even be here at the end of the week. It's possible. It's possible. But next year, I don't know. I, I really don't. I mean, because when you look at Gio's workload as a Nat, he's in the top three of so many statistical categories. He's been really good for this team. And he's had some great years. He's had some rough patches, but he's been consistent, and he doesn't usually get injured. So, I mean, he's a durable lefty that will give you 180 to 200 innings a year, and he's he's proven in that regard. Now, I mean, maybe he a new senior, like a new scenery or a new city would do him good. I, I don't know, but it should be interesting to watch at least. The Nationals will need starting pitching. They will need to address their starting rotation this winter for sure. Does that mean bringing back Gio Gonzalez on a one-year deal? It could. They don't have another left-handed starter as things are constituted right now for 2019. But Mike Rizzo and ownership could decide that they want a little more consistency. Um, they want to go another direction. And as you said, for Geo personally, a, a change of scenery might potentially do him well. All right, let's see what else we got here. Uh, Jack, oh, this is really important. Jackie B wants to know, when you get hit with a Gatorade shower on the road, what do you do with your suits? Overnight dry cleaning, trash, special garment bag, trash. Just throw them away. <laughs> it's out of here. Uh, well, the Gatorade on the road doesn't typically happen because it, uh, that will usually come after a walk-off, which can only happen at home. And also, I think teams are a little wary of doing a big display on the field in another team's ballpark. Um, so typically, uh, those uh, Gatorade moments are within Nationals Park. Uh, when those suits get hit, I send them off to the dry cleaner, and I get this question a lot. I pick up the tab. Team does not pick up the tab. Players do not pick up the tab. That's fine with me. And it, it, the players have been nice to me this year. When Trey Turner and Adam Eaton got me intentionally, and they did get me intentionally, it was with water. And I, I told Trey, I appreciate the fact that, you know, you're looking out for the suit, and uh, you're, not, you're not coming at me with red Gatorade or anything like that. Yeah, that, that, that was nice of them. I, uh, I also remember, what was it, 2015, they went on the whole chocolate syrup brigade. Oh, yeah. And you did get hit in Milwaukee when Max had that gem. That's true. 17 Ks out there, but that was a stupid thing they were doing. I thought the chocolate thing was so dumb. But anyway, yeah, I didn't love that. Uh, talk about dry cleaning. I mean, or maybe trash. But yeah. uh, anyway, um, let's move on. Mark Zeno. Zeno, my buddy from Baltimore, used to cover the Ravens with me. He's now a radio host in Atlanta. So he, your buddy, asked you if you never got offered the job with the Nats, what would you be doing now? He did. Does he have like an inside? answer that he knows you're going to tell something stupid <laughs> uh, maybe he does i don't know i don't know um what would i be doing if i didn't get uh this job as as sideline reporter um i don't know uh, i would probably still be writing i i didn't uh love my job as a beat writer because i tv was always uh, kind of the end game for me um but you know covering sports is what i always wanted to do so if i if the tv job never opened up i'd probably still be you know beat writing somewhere, whether it was for Masson or, or some other website or, uh, you know, just trying to piece together a sports media career a different way. 
All right. Thanks for the question, Mark. Yeah, there you go, Mark. Uh, our last one from Nats. Will Lander, that's got to be a Twitter. Is name. his name Nats? Because I don't think so. if so, he doesn't really have a chance or, or, or choice which team he's going to be a fan of. Yeah, I don't think so. But his question is, what's your favorite MLB city to visit based on the food? We've done this briefly. I think I'm guessing he means like in the city itself, yes. not the ballpark. Yes. If the ballpark is Philly, we've done that. Yeah. You know, moving on. Uh, but what's your favorite MLB city to visit based on the food or the city? Chicago is up there for me. There are so many good restaurant options in Chicago. If you want deep dish, if you want a good steakhouse, there's RPM Italian and RPM Steak. They're a personal favorite of mine. Um, there's a ton of really good restaurant options there. San Francisco as well. Mm-hmm. Um, always quality options. I, I would say off the top of my head, those are probably the top two in, in maybe that order, Chicago, San Francisco. See, to me, there's a clear-cut Number one, it's not either San them. Diego? No, New York. I mean, New York's the best food in the world, in my opinion. I mean, if you're not a good restaurant in New York, you close. You know? True. So, I mean, I like New York a lot. I like the ones you said are great. I think if you break it down to, okay, I want fish tacos, you go to San Diego. Yes. You know, but so we have like different things in each city that we really like. Um, but we do get to like check out the food scene in a lot of cities, the, which is awesome. The thing about New York is we don't get a lot of day games in New York, I feel like. The chances to go out to dinner in New York, I feel like are fewer than they are in other cities. Like in Chicago, you know you're going to get well, at that, least yeah. one or two day games if you're there over a weekend, and you've got the night to go explore and try out something new. That's true. Yeah, yeah, agreed. But, yeah, we get a lot of good food on the road, which is awesome. All right, John, uh, let's – is that it for fantasy? Yeah, yeah, that's it. Okay. Um, Let's go uh, and look ahead with On Deck. Um, So where are we at now? 30 games remaining in the season, somewhere around there, 29. Mm -hmm. Um, And as we discussed, still a chance for the Nationals to to do something special here. For me, um, what I'm going to monitor over the final 20 – nine 30 games of the season is how this team plays the the type of baseball that it plays I think all season long this team has been searching for you know we talked about the offense and the pitching beyond that clean baseball consistent clean baseball defensively base running um, moving runners can can this team put that together can it show that it can win more one run games 14 and 21 in one run games this year. That's not good. Um, can they play better baseball? And if so, they'll give themselves a chance to get back into the mix here and will probably give fans more optimism for next season. If it's more of the same, where it's one game where they look good, one game that, you know, they're running into outs on the bases and they're. 0 for 14 with runners in scoring position and unable to move a runner in from third with less than two outs, you know, then I think there's going to be some, some more questions for Davey Martinez and, and um, some, some more pressure on him next spring to address how they're playing these games, not just the results, but, but how they're playing them. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think so many times this year we are in a post-game show and say like, oh, well, the Nats gave them this, they gave them that. But flip, flip the coin around, Tuesday night in Philly, the Phillies gave the Nats opportunity to take that game, and the Nats did, which was awesome. And that's kind of what good teams do. And so I'm, I'm interested to see, and I think it's a byproduct of what you're saying, is if they play the game the right way, things will start falling their way a little bit more than they have maybe for the majority of the season. But, no, I totally agree with you. What do you got for on deck, John? 
September call-ups are right around the corner. Um, Saturday? Saturday is September 1st. Yeah, so you're going to see Victor Robles, which is exciting. I want to see Carter Keyboom. I don't know if you'll see him or not, but I would love to see I want a boomer back-to-back homer. I want you want a double boomer? Spe- a double boomer homer, Spencer, Carter, either order, but I want a double boomer back-to-back. Now, Spencer does not yet have one as a big leaguer, so that would be something. I hope he hits it first thing, because you don't want you know, like your little bro to come up and hit a homer before you do. When you've already had a couple stints up here. Right. and yeah. But back to Robles, I think you might get a sense of what the outfield might look like next year with Soto, Robles, Eaton, Harper, Michael A. Taylor. Like, there's options next year. Who knows what's going to happen with Harper? That's a topic for another day because he still has a month of this season left. But there's a good chance that Soto, Robles, and Eaton are going to be on the roster next year. So I want to – Robles has been hitting the cover off the ball since he's come back from that freak elbow injury, which is awesome to see because that thing was nasty looking when it happened earlier this year. So I'm, ex- I'm excited. I always get excited in good years and bad years as far as what the Nats are doing in the standings. I like September call-ups. It gives us a lot of storylines to talk about, a lot of new faces, and faces that are genuinely excited to be there too just because it's their first or one of their first tastes of uh, – the show. I think it'll be really cool to see Victor Robles back in a Nationals uniform and get an ovation from the crowd and all that stuff. I mean, as you said, that was a gross injury um, when he dove for that baseball. So um, how much playing time does he get with an outfield that's already crowded to the point that Michael A. Taylor is really not getting any playing time at all? We'll see. Um, But it will be nice to see him back in uniform. It'll be interesting to see who else gets called up uh reliever wise there's some intriguing options down there and carter keyboom we'll we'll see all right john that'll do it uh for this episode of between innings um thanks for allowing me into your hotel room no problem, no problem. Uh, and uh we'll we'll do our best folks to to keep these episodes coming over the final uh five weeks of the season another couple hopefully to come uh thanks to peter cpa as always john thank you and uh that'll do it or Between Innings with Dan Coulter.